Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day, a day that is set apart for worship of you, a day in which our Lord resurrected, and so also we gather, assemble to worship in His name. We thank you for this brief time where we can come together and to study the truth of your word and the doctrines of your church, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us, direct us. May you be glorified through our study together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, as I said, we'll we'll start today uh, on an overview of what we call the ordinary, or, no, missed it already, didn't I? Ordinary means of grace. And I want to start with this, is just sort of a way to, to introduce it. Uh, and that is the Apostle Peter concludes in his second epistle. And I think you should have this in your notes. In his second epistle, he concludes with a warning and an admonition. And if I remember correctly, I, I think that I've got uh, that spelled out. If I don't, you can write it down in your notes or turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. In that portion, <coughs> pardon me, in that portion of his letter, he gives a warning and an admonition. And here is what he teaches us. Number one, he tells us that the ignorant and the unstable, and yes, that's the word that's translated in the English, the ignorant, and the unstable twist God's Word. They twist God's Word. So, because that is a fact, and, and here's an interesting point in, in a study of Second Peter, where we're doing that at this point, is it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. In other words, the way that Peter presents it is, here's something that you can count on encountering in this world. Here's something you can encounter possibly in the church. Here's something that you're going to encounter as a Christian. Be prepared because there are ignorant people, there are unstable people. They twist the Word of God and so what? So, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In other words, what Peter is saying is, is there are ignorant and twisted people, I mean ignorant and unstable people who twist the Word of God, and there is the susceptibility within the church for believers to be carried away. He's not talking about losing your salvation. What he's talking about is it's very possible for people to be deceived, to be carried away, and in that being carried away, the implication is, is that there are all these sorts of things that people can, can get all bothered by, all excited about, all consumed with, all of these things. And these ignorant and twisted people know that. And so they can twist God's Word to lead away, carry away, and also it can affect your stability. And that's something that we don't want, right? We as believers, we want to be rooted firmly on the Word of God. We don't want to be carried astray by the whims of the day, by the deception of the ignorant and unstable. And so here's what Peter says. So what? So how can we be stable? How can we be guarded against 
being carried away by the ignorant and the unstable. This is what he says. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's an active verb, right? To grow, in this case it's an imperative. Grow, you, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not typically the way that we would use the word grace here, but in this case the implication is active. You are actively growing. You are actively engaging And so, by virtue of this, how are we to understand this and how are we to apply this to our lives? Well, the warning is, first of all, a caution against gullibility. You've heard me teach about this in this class before, and I've preached before as well, is in today's age, I find some of my Christian friends to be the most gullible within our culture, not the most wise. So it's a caution against gullibility, but it is coupled with an admonition for discernment. We're not to be gullible, and we are to be discerning. But, and here's the key, and this is where oftentimes we get off course, we're not merely watchdogs for heresy. We're not merely watchdogs. If you, you know these kind of folks, right? Maybe you've gone to a, a church like that where it seems like everything that, that everything they talk about, everything they think about, everything that consumes them is what they're against. I told Sydney one time I had been following a, a, a certain evangelical leader in our, our country and, and reading what he would write and this sort of thing. And one day I, I, I came home and I said, you know what, just once, just once, I want him to tell me what he's for. Because for a couple of years now, All I hear is what he's against and what I need to be so worried about and so concerned about. And he's just like a worry machine. Worry about this. Worry about this. Christian, you need to be concerned about this. I'm like, man, I wish Christians would spend a lot more time on what we need to focus on and not be watchdogs of heresy per se. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, all of us. All of us who have professed faith in Christ, we all possess the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells us, and the Holy Spirit is not inactive. He is actively involved in your life and in my life, and we are being sanctified. That is being, may, means that we are being made holy in the sense that we are being conformed more and more and more to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8. And so Peter gives this imperative knowing that. He knows the fact that we are in fact indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that we do in fact grow in this grace and knowledge of the Lord's Savior Jesus Christ. To grow in this grace and knowledge, and that's the main thing that I'm drawing your attention to within that passage, grace... And knowledge. Keep in mind that he's using this grace differently in the sense of our justification, right? Because we don't grow like we're more saved, uh, we're more justified today than we were yesterday. No, that's, that's not the case. By faith, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, we are justified as righteous. But in this sense, he is talking about that which we are able to grow in in 
by God's grace, is what God gives. And it is a right desire of all who are in Christ. A right desire for all of us is to desire to grow this way. In fact, I can make an, an emphatic statement, and it's not hyperbole. Every single Christian should desire this. Unequivocally. Every Christian should desire to grow in grace and knowledge. So that leads us to the question, how? Right? I mean, if everybody's convinced now, okay, I get it. Scripture's clear. We are to do this. It is an imperative. The question is, how? And we are benefited in our tradition, in the Reformed tradition, with a very concise description of the answer to this. In the Reformed tradition, the answer is what theologians call media gratia. Media, the Latin, media gratia, which is where we get our expression means of grace. And so, where can we get a good summary statement of what is meant by media gratia? by the means of grace. Well, I want to draw your attention to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and you've got this on the handout in front of you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 88, asks this. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? Stop right there, if you will. Because if you go ahead and and read the answer, you may forget that sometimes reading the answer without understanding the question can lead you astray. You've got to understand what the question means. And so let's start there with the question, and I'll ask for your help on this. When the Westminster Divines crafted the Shorter Catechism, what did they mean by outward? The outward... An ordinary means. Let's just start with the word outward. What do they mean by outward? What, that, what might that be distinct from? Visible? What's that? Heard? Visible and heard, right? So, so like for example, the reading of God's Word or seeing the elements of the Lord's Supper. Those would be, those would be good examples. Okay, practice of, of everyday living, we might say. What might the outward be distinct from? And this is, this is an overly simplistic question, so keep it there. Meditation. Huh? Meditation. meditation, but meditation is, is uh, an expression of what? Inward. So, so the idea here is, is that outward is distinct from inward. In other words, it's that which is, to use your examples, it's visible, it's heard, uh, it, is, it is practical in, in the sense of, of we see it a- every day. It is not that which is inward, although we're going to find that it is very much involves the inward man. But the point is, is that this is something that is observable. It's part of the practical <coughs> aspect of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so let's go to the next word. Means. 
The next word actually is ordinary, but we're going we're to come back to that. Means. What, does, what is means? We, I use that expression some. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by means? <coughs> yeah, I love that. I think vehicle is a great word in that. A means is how, or how, means are how a result is brought about or made to happen. A means are a result, or how a result, rather, is brought about or made to happen. Rusty said it's, it's a vehicle. And that's a good, to, in order for me to get from my house to church, the means by which I got here was a vehicle, right? And so we think about that in terms of how something is brought about, how something is made to happen. Now let's go back and think about the word ordinary. And again, think of it in terms of opposition. What, what is the opposite of ordinary? Extraordinary. Thank you. Right? So what would be just an example in, in Scripture of the extraordinary? Burning bush, it's a great example, right? Anybody in here ever seen a burning bush through which God, the covenant God has com- communicated to us His holy will? If you have, I really want to meet like today. Yeah. The Red Sea, the plagues on Egypt. Uh, we can think of an, a number of extraordinary examples. We can think about, for, for example, in, in the New Testament, uh, of um, and yeah, or Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, we, we can think of, of various examples uh, where there is an extraordinary work of God. And so, even though the ordinary means of grace in a popular sense are extraordinary, I promise they are, we don't mean it that way. We mean that they are outward, they are visible, they are uh, part of our, of our everyday life. They are also ordinary in the sense that they are not, God is not using them in a miraculous sense like parting the Red Sea. All right? And so they're outward, they're ordinary, they're means, and then it says Christ communicateth. And um, I love the Westminster Standards. But every once in a while you come across a word that means something a little different than how we use it today. Uh, what do we mean by communicateth? Or rather, what do they mean that Christ communicateth? Impart? Works through these means, right? What it doesn't mean, is it doesn't mean talking or using texting or instant messaging, or, or whatever the case is. Uh, the, the idea there is, uh, as J.J. said, in, in, in parting, it is a giving. God uses these. Christ uses these. And then finally, what does it mean by benefits of redemption? And this may be the most overlooked portion of this catechism question and answer. Why is that expression so important to our understanding of the means of grace? Benefits of redemption. So Christ has accomplished our redemption. 
by His perfect obedience to the law, by His sacrificial atoning death, by His victorious resurrection, by God's grace, through faith in Him, we are redeemed. And there are benefits that come from that redemption. Ordinary benefits. Outward benefits. In other words, as we're going to see today, in terms of the ordinary means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer, what we find is that this is specific to you who are in Christ. Now, would I encourage an unbeliever to read the Bible? Well, sure I would. I pray that they would. And I pray that God, by His grace, through the work of His Holy Spirit, would show them the gospel. Uh, Would I allow an unbeliever to take the Lord's Supper? No, I would not. It's not a supper for the unbelieving. Would we baptize an unbeliever? No, we would not. Or the child of unbelievers? No, we would not. And so the idea here is that these are benefits that flow to us outward, ordinary of Christ's redemption. Practically speaking, what is this question asking? Look at it again and read the question one more time. Practically speaking, this question, the idea of means of grace, answers these questions. How do I, as a believer, access the grace of the Lord for my many needs? Where do I go? What do I do to connect with the real help He gives to sinners and sufferers here in this world? I know I am saved by His grace alone. But Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You believe that. I believe that. And I want that. And you want that. But at a practical level, how do we come to Him for His grace? The answer is through the means of grace. Look with me at the answer of this question. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer. The Word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Now, the last part of that, the last phrase of that, has also been misunderstood by some. And the clarification is, is that yes, in fact, the means of grace God will in fact use in various ways for the conversion of the lost, but specifically in terms of our sanctification, that we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved, describing our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. God uses His means of grace in this sense to save His elect. 
Now, there's one word in there that some people say, well, now, it just seemed like we skipped right past that. And it's the word ordinance. Did you catch that? It's the word ordinance. And I don't want to skip past it. What is an ordinance? What? What's that? All right, that's which God has ordained for us to use in theoretically in, in worship, in our sanctification, so forth and so on. An ordinance is, to elaborate on that, is a public, it is a public means of worship ordained or commanded by Christ, such as baptism. It's very clear. Such as the Lord's Supper. Very clear. Such as public prayer, etc., etc. The Westminster Confession in chapter 21 elaborates on this. And I don't want to spend too much time here, but I do want to bring this to your attention. And I can't remember if I put this on your handout. Yeah, I did. Under, huh, I've got two B's there, don't I? Well, you know what I mean. That should be a C and then a D and then an E and... And so forth, right? So under the second B, uh, what is an ordinance? Westminster Confession, chapter 21.3 says this. Listen closely because this is going to help us with this idea of ordinance. <clears throat> Prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of His Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. That pretty much sums it up, right? That's how we understand the, the uh, ordinance of public prayer. Then in the confession in chapter 21, if you skip down to point 5, it says this, "...the reading of the Scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the Word, in obedience unto God, with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments." instituted by Christ, are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Beside religious oaths, vows, solemn fasting, and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. Now again, that's more than you probably wanted to know uh, about the ordinary means of grace and specifically the aspect of ordinances, but the general idea is, is that which, God, which Christ ordained, that which Christ commanded is included here. And that is why the Shorter Catechism uses this expression, especially. Especially, we're drawing to your attention these three parts of the ordinary, outward and ordinary means of grace, and they are... Word, sacraments, and prayer. And what are the two sacraments of the church? Yeah, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we know that part of our responsibility as Christians is to be faithful in baptism 
And so also in celebrating the Lord's Supper. These are the sacraments that Christ has ordained and commanded for His church. Now, so that, that's where we're going. And I, I know this has been sort of a, a long introduction, uh, but that's, that's where we're going. And we're going to look at, at each of these in varying aspects over the coming weeks. But before we move into, for example, uh, the Word, I want to give a couple of cautions and a couple of, uh, I think, elaborations on this topic. And the first is this. When we use the word means of grace means of grace, we don't mean misuse of grace. And let me explain what I mean by that. Means versus misuse. There is the possibility to manipulate and misinterpret the Word of God. And so part of the responsibility of rightly using the means of grace is to rightly Be faithful to the Word of God. Be faithful to a right interpretation. And there are a number of things here that are of emphasis. And and again, I think you guys now, many of you have known me for a long time. You know I could just park here and we'd be here another 10 years. Uh, And I'm not going to do that, but just a couple of of highlights in this. Uh, This is why it's important for the minister of a congregation to to know the languages, um, to rightly know and use the the languages. Uh, If there is a a pastor of a congregation, and I know that languages are not popular today, uh, but when you dig in and you begin to study God's Word, uh, inevitably there are challenges that you will face. And in my own practice... I don't go to the original languages every single sermon, but there are aspects of my sermon study where I will go to the original languages and and will study them. And even in my own discipline, go back and study more. Um, I'm... I mean, unrelated to, uh, to this study, but I've gone back and I'm restudying Greek, for example, uh, after studying it uh, over 10 years ago, and now I'm, I'm back again and immersing myself in it, and it is wonderful to dig into the, to the languages. In addition to that is what we call hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics is just a fancy theological term for interpretation. Um, in the Reformed tradition, we come and we look at the Scriptures within an interpretive framework. And if there is something that seemingly contradicts one another, then we need to back up and we need to better look at this because God's Word, all of God's Word, is in fact not contradictory, but in fact all agrees. The problem, of course, is, is us, isn't it? A third area is rigorous discipline. This is where in our evangelical culture that we have found the approach to God's Word with a sense of a casualness and a flippancy has not done us a service. Um, I don't want to dissuade you from going to God's Word. In fact, you know that we encourage and we produce a reading guide, encourage everyone to go through uh, the Scriptures individually every year, and it is a benefit to you to go through God's Word. But we need to understand that God's Word, in fact, can be challenging. There 
are difficult passages. There are uh, passages within Scripture where we have to take an interpretive position. And because of that, we need to have a rigorous discipline when we approach God. For example, and I've used this jokingly before in this class, but it's like I was, I was in a, a Bible study one time, and, um, and, and this lady in, in the Bible study, she said, well, that verse means to me, and I thought, well, I don't care what it means to you. I didn't say that. I was trying to be a nice person. Uh, but I'm like, you know, I, I don't want your casual observation here on what that means. I, let's just, if, if we're going to do that, let, let's just dig in. Let's just isolate that verse and start to work and look at it in its context and work through this instead of that it might mean this to me today and it might mean that to me uh, tomorrow. Furthermore, it implies an ordered mind. It implies an ordered mind that we are to come to Scripture not with everything as if it is divided, but an order mind. And then finally, the minister is to have the ability to preach in a way that the church is edified. Again, I've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Um, preaching the Word of God is not a Bible study. Um, when you go into a Bible study, uh, we have the ability to pause and reflect and to look at a passage and we might drill down and we might look at a word, for example, and, and stay there. But from the New Te- really from the Old Testament to the New Testament, to the church fathers, into the Middle Ages, to the Reformation, and so on, preaching has consistently been about proclaiming from the Word of God, not a Bible study. Although you'll note that I tend to incorporate aspects that you might use in a Bible study, but preaching is to be from the Word of God and is to be for the sake of edifying the church. Julie, you had a question. Well said. Hopefully you could all hear uh, Julie. Uh, This is something to just elaborate on what she said, but before I elaborate on it, I just want to put a punctuation mark on what she said of the importance of praying for the preaching pastor. Um, I ask you to pray for me. I consistently, uh, in fact, we emphasize it every year in our prayer guide, the importance of praying for your pastor because uh, I am a sinner just as you are. Uh, And so when I approach the Word of God, uh, I need God by His grace and by His anointing, we might say, to help me that through His Holy Spirit I might preach the truth. But to elaborate on what she said, one of the things uh, within our own tradition, in our own uh, denomination, and this is foreign to many today, uh, but that, and I think many of you know this, but within our denomination, you cannot be ordained as a minister unless you have a master's degree, typically an MDiv, a Master's of Divinity, as well as a working knowledge in the languages. 
That's sort of like the, the hurdle, the first hurdle. If you don't have that, you may have the best of intentions, uh, but those are requirements. It doesn't mean that an education guarantees a faithful pastor, uh, but it does, in fact, impose certain requirements upon that individual, and I'm, I'm thankful for that uh, because, unfortunately, today, many churches and many pulpits are at a distinct disadvantage because... They have uneducated ministers who do not know. And I've given this example before, but when I was, and I think the second year of uh, classes in my master's degree, we had uh, one of these, you know, online uh, discussion things. Some of you have participated in this, you know, Blackboard or something, you know, and, and, and so you're, you're having a typing discussion. And the assignment for the discussion was a certain passage of Scripture, and, which I'm not going to go into right now, uh, primarily because I can't remember it. Um, but um, but the, the passage of Scripture, and we were to, and it's a di- it was a difficult one, and we were to give an explanation of what that, that verse meant. And so, you know, different people are, are working and, and putting things in. And I looked at it and I thought, you know what? You could interpret that two ways. I wonder what it looks like in the Greek. And so I went to the Greek and I looked at it and it, it was very clear. Because in Greek, you, you have, uh, now I'm going to bore you with this too much, but you have each noun typically will have a definite article. That definite article will agree with that noun, and then the verb that goes with that noun will agree with it. So in Greek, it, it doesn't follow the, the, the way that we would look at it literally in English. You may have the verb over here and the subject over here and the definite article, so forth and so on. But you can look at them and they agree by gender, masculine or feminine, by case, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can look at it and you're going to go, oh, I get it. it. It makes complete sense by looking at that. And so I typed out my explanation and, uh, and, and immediately I get a, well, I disagree. And I thought, well, that's interesting. No, I actually think it means it means this. And I said, well, I appreciate your opinion, and I, I, I can see why you would think that, but just so you know, and I went and I broke down the Greek for him and explained the Greek grammar on why it had to mean this. And his response was not, oh, I haven't had Greek yet. That makes complete sense. Thanks for sharing that with me. His answer was, and I quote, well, you have your opinion and I have mine. And I texted back, I'm t- typed back. I said, no, I think you misunderstood me. I said, it, it can't mean that gra- grammatically. It's, it's impossible for it to, to, to mean that. And he sent back some sort of heated response and the teacher got involved at that point. I actually was a nice guy for a change on this and I was, you know, I was just trying to be helpful. And, um, but but the, the case I'm trying to make is, is that the means of grace is not the misuse of the means of grace, meaning that we need to be guarded about the way that we approach the Word of God. We also, for example... And this is, this is a perfect example that all of you will be familiar with. Remember what the Apostle Paul encountered with the Lord's Supper in Corinth? And he used the expression, as it's, as it's translated in English, that they were observing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Well, that's a misuse of the means of grace. You would think about it this way. Somebody might come along today and say, well, at least they're doing it. 
You know, some churches don't even observe the Lord's Supper. At least, they were, at least they were just doing it. Well, the Apostle Paul doesn't say that. He says, wow, you're so far out of bounds that some of you may even be sick as a result of it, some even to death. That's, 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 that's a big deal, right? The misuse of the, the means of grace. And so the emphasis there uh, is that there is a, a right use of the means of grace. And then, then lastly, uh, on the sacraments, is, for example, baptism uh, is not a flippant requirement to be accomplished, but according to uh, the Westminster Standards, chapter 28, is a solemn admission of the baptized into the visible church. And I won't elaborate on some of the things that I've seen on videos on how baptism is celebrated today, but I can assure you it wasn't a solemn admission into the visible church. It was really quite silly and sad. Furthermore, there is a confusion of personal prayer and a lack of public prayer. Um, today we have this idea that when we say the word prayer, immediately our mind thinks private prayer. In fact, I probably should have done that as a test. Just say prayer and then ask which did you think of first, private or prayer. Most people think private prayer first. That's not typically how our ancestors thought of it, interestingly enough. Typically, private prayer was learned and led through public prayer. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. And so we are to be uh, faithful in not misusing the means of grace. In closing, not only is the means not to be confused with misuse, but furthermore, the means are not to be confused with mechanics. I tried to keep this simple with M words, right? So you can remember this. Misuse, mechanics, and here's what I mean by that. The ordinary means of grace do not convey what the Roman Catholics once believed, or still believe, ex opera operato. By the work having been worked, is how you would translate that Latin expression. In other words, that the grace is actually in those elements, as opposed to the presence of Christ. And that there is within those elements such an importance. A better example of this, because I know... uh, Many of us didn't grow up Roman Catholic, uh, but the other one was, I've used this example before, is one of my professors once did this. In a previous generation, this would have been far more impactful. Uh, doesn't work so much now, but to do this. <clears throat> once upon a time, there would be gasps. And yet, uh, that's, a, that's a printed book. Print book, hardbound, we use it, but in and of itself, just a book. But when we go to it, and God by His grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, even reading a translation, even distanced from the original autographs, even then, God works through the reading and the preaching 
and the memorizing and the meditating of God's Word. The power is not in a bound book. The power is in the inspired Word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. You've heard this before, right? (laughs) And so Christ makes the Word, the sacraments, and prayer, for example, effective by His own presence, by His Spirit. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. And that applies to the means of grace as well. Christ's presence is essential. Yes. Oh, I thought you, you were asking. Yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, Don. Yeah. Right. Yeah, one of my professors said, if, if, if somebody ever uh, says, uh, God told me, you better ask him for chapter and verse. <laughs> I thought that was good. All right, in conclusion, nor may the means of grace be divorced from the church as if a personal relationship trumps the necessity of the church. God gives His Word to the church and rightly do we guard it with integrity. We do this through faithful translation and interpretation, encouraging literacy within the church, encouraging study within the church, encouraging private and family devotions, and of course, the public reading of the Scripture, which will happen this morning in our worship service. But rightly does the Shorter Catechism emphasize the preaching of the Word. And we're going to go into this in much greater depth. But the point of it is, Julie made earlier, is that God does in fact speak through the preaching of His Word as the minister is drawing out from the exegesis of the Scripture and delivering it in an exposition of it in a sermon. Likewise, God has given His church the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are holy ordinances instituted by Christ. And in these sacraments, as visible and experiential signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Well, we're going to look at this in far greater depth. Today was just an introduction, a simple flyover and summary of the ordinary means of grace. And we're going to start next week in looking at the Word of God. And I think you're really going to enjoy this study as we dig into this in greater depth. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your means of grace. And as we, your people, assemble today in worship, uh, we will indeed read the Scriptures, we will hear the preaching of Your Word, prayers will be prayed, hymns, which are prayers in essence, will be sung, and all of this we will do 
by Your grace, through the presence of Your Holy Spirit, that we may be edified, that You may be glorified. Oh, You are a gracious God indeed. We thank You for Your outward and ordinary means of grace. May we be faithful to grow in the, knowledge, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.